Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have three very special guests in regards to a book I read by Jira Lind Kolarik. And Jira Lind and I have done two interviews in the past, one in the recent past, about her excellent book about serial killer Larry Eiler. The first interview was based on the title of her book, Free to Kill, the True Story of Larry Eiler. And then we just did one with her and a coroner named Scott McCord discussing upgate updates to that book but today we're going to talk about her her another book that she wrote titled I am Kane and we have her and two people who are also involved in this case that happened the original crime took place in 1990 but again the three people will be Geraldine Kolarik, Jennifer Bishop Jenkins and John Corbett and they can talk more in detail about this book and this whole fascinating case and what tie, how it ties into Certain cases today that I think are in public uh, venue and people know about. So, Geraldine, Jennifer, John, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, agreeing to the interview. Uh, thanks, Thank Bill. Thanks a lot. And uh, I'm Geraldine Polaric, and uh, I'm the author of I Am Kane. And uh, as a true crime author, uh, I was working with Avon Books, and we I've done a number of books as a journalist uh, writing true crime. But I feel that I Am Kane is the most interesting of the books. It's not about just a murder that happened on April 7, 1990, of a young couple, Nancy and Richard Langer, and their unborn child in a very well-to-do suburb of Winnetka in Illinois. But it's a story that looks at something that's very topical today, especially with the Ethan Crumbly case in Michigan. It is the parents being held responsible for their child, knowing that their child had the potential of being very dangerous to other people and potential of being a killer, but yet they managed to look the other way or pay off people that were victims of their child's behavior. And that's why I Am Kane is so interesting. The book is not only about the couple, Nancy and Richard Langard, but it's a story about a young boy in Winnetka came from a well-to-do family, David Burrow. David Burrow was a young boy that had every opportunity. He was a young boy that grew up in a family with three other children, and one of them became an attorney. And uh, one, I mean, one of them, uh, one of them, yeah, I think when, when his sister became an attorney, I think, and his brother had a very good job. And, uh, David Burrow is a boy that had severe problems, behavioral problems. And uh, it all started when he was in his teens. When he was 12 years of age, 12 years of old, he was using his BB gun in his room and he shot a first grader that was crossing the street. And the police were called in, they got the BB gun, and he was saying, uh, with his father at the police station that he was aiming for the sign and didn't mean to shoot the kid. And then this kid was not charged. No action was taken. Parents paid off the parents of the kid that he shot. And then all of a sudden we had another incident in which you had uh, at 15 years old where people were having their windows shot out of their cars as they passed Willow and Linden area. And they finally figured it out it was David Burrow when a lady did a U-turn in the in the driveway there, and he was at the window shooting out the window, all her windows, saying, "Get out of our driveway! Out of our driveway!" And then they they didn't charge him because he was only 14 years old. And then when he was finally 16, on August 21st, 1987, his parents took him into to a mental hospital in Chicago for juveniles because he tried to poison his entire family. And they brought him there for psychiatric help. And the counselors found that there was a pattern with this boy. And it was a very aggressive, horrible pattern of where this child would work out, set fires, he would steal things. He, he, would, try to use, uh, he would try to use false IDs, everything like that. And they knew that they had problems, but after two months, they signed him out of the mental hospital and never brought him back and never did any follow-ups. And then you have this horrendous murder on April 7, 1990, 
where the police had no idea who did it. It was a un, they could not find the motive of why this young couple were executed, executed in their basement and Nancy being pregnant. Can you talk of a little bit, you go in detail about the lives of Nancy and Richard Langer. Can you talk about them in detail? Because I think they're, you know, sometimes they don't talk about victims of crime enough. Well, I, I think I'm going to toss this to Jennifer, too. Okay. Jennifer is the sister of Nancy. And she will talk about them as a wonderful couple and their job and their life and their future. I'm going to toss it to you, Jennifer. Yeah, thanks. Um, so my sister, Nancy Bishop Langert, and her husband, Richard Langert, had been um, married three years, and they were expecting their first baby. They were indeed wonderful people, uh, not a single enemy or problem in the whole world. They were charming, funny, well-liked, successful young people. Um, Nancy was 25, Richard was 28, and they were... Um, uh, they, they were both working for uh, uh, Gloria Jean's Coffee Beans uh, at that time. Um, they were, had just planned to buy and move into their first home uh, when Nancy found out that she was pregnant. And, and in fact, that was just such a happy, happy time because she was the youngest of the three girls in our family. I'm the oldest. And um, there was always this sort of, and I had had uh, pregnancy and a miscarriage, and there was always this um, sort of who is going to be the first one to deliver a grandchild um, in the family. And, and for it to be the youngest Nancy, everybody was just ecstatically happy. Nancy was beaming with happiness. Uh, and um, they were um, uh, they were brutally murdered before she could reach the second trimester of her pregnancy. It was a staggeringly uh, random and tragic and uh, a heinous and evil crime. And, you know, we can certainly talk about the details of what happened that night, but um, just so you know, they were uh, horrifically innocent victims uh, picked at random. Right, it's really shocking. And you had kind of a tight family. Everybody kind of lived fairly close to each other at yes. that time, right? And your dad was a uh, well-to-do attorney yes. in that area, is that correct? Yes, uh, we all lived within a mile of each other and um, a very happy, close family. Spent all of our birthdays and holidays and a lot of our weekends together, um, and uh, it was um, devastating for my parents. And Richard was Richard Langard. You, how long were they married for before this event? They they were married three years, three years when they so were they together, right? But they had dated for like five years before that. Gotcha. So he was well known, and he uh, so his kind of story too. How did they meet each other? I forgot where that. They were working together for one of my father's, uh, my father was a, um, uh, a corporate labor lawyer for in meatpacking industry. And one of his um, uh, subsidiary com companies that he was an executive over um, uh, had hired both uh, Richard and Nancy and they met in the office there. And they were kind of on their way up with a child and they just moved into a place they had either purchased or they were, Right. So they kind of came move out. Right. Of they, were, they were waiting for this house that they had purchased to be ready and and to be um, kind of the transfer. They were within a month or so of moving in, um, but they were staying temporarily at a townhouse in Winnetka that my mother and father had bought to retire into. They were getting ready to move from their big house down into the smaller townhouse. And Nancy and Richard were getting ready to move up into their new first big house. And so it was just a transitional thing. They were living in the townhouse in Winnetka for just a couple of months amidst a, a big pile of boxes. It didn't even really look like anybody was you know, living there. There was card tables and boxes mainly laying around. Right. And I mean, like the there was a duration between the time of the murders and when the perpetrator was caught. Six you, months. Six months. Can you talk about what it was like and their suspicions and their potential uh, who done it? Like who, who was the potential suspects at that time? Yeah, it was, uh, I have to tell you that for me as a, a murder victim's family member is really one of the most difficult aspects of this. The six months of not knowing who did it and why, uh, it was so incredibly brutal. Nancy was pregnant. Richard was shot point blank in the back of the head, execution style with a 357 Magnum and, and disruptor bullets. His head was literally exploded. And Nancy 
next to him, uh, was laying next to him. She had been shot in the belly after we found out later she had actually crossed her arms over her pregnant belly and begged for the life of her unborn child. And he had actually, um, David Biro had actually pointed the gun directly at her pregnant belly as she begged for the life of her unborn child and fired. Again, disruptor bullets, the bullets exploded the fetus. We actually had wanted to know the gender of the child because we knew the boy and girl names that she had already picked out. And um, when they did the autopsy, they couldn't even determine the gender of the child. This was before they had DNA and in 1990, and they were just looking to see what the baby was. And the fetus had actually been directly hit by the bullet and exploded. And so it was a, a really... Um, it was a horrific crime and the not knowing who did this for so long. Yes, the theories were rather bizarre. Some of them circulated around my other middle sister genes, political activities in Northern Ireland, completely ridiculous theory, but there was some national um, uh, CIA attention to it. The thinking that because my sister had done some human rights work in Northern Ireland, that this could be uh, some sort of a, because at that time, you know, late eighties and early nineties, there was a lot of violence in Northern Ireland between them and the British and some ter terrorism. And there was actually a theory that there was, this was the first act of international terrorism on American soil. Um, we all knew it was, you know, a ridiculous theory, had nothing to do with the crime. And of course, later were proven to be correct about that. Right. So that six months, I think Geraldine wrote, it was a million dollars spent on the investigation. And it's a very, very low crime area too, right? I think there was only like one murder in those in the decades before that had happened. It was a very low crime area, Bill. And also the other scenarios was the fact that Richard liked to uh, do a little sports betting. So they thought it was a mob hit. And then they thought maybe the couple had an affair with somebody. And the fact that it was a lover, now that Nancy was pregnant, was out to get revenge. They also felt that maybe since Lee Bishop was an attorney working with corporations, maybe it was some type of a corporate hit uh, on his kids to silence him. I mean, we had so many scenarios. Nobody thought that it was a perfect crime committed by a young boy in the area who wanted to commit the perfect crime. Right, that's what's strange. There was like a $500 $500 in an envelope that wasn't taken, no uh, property was taken. So it was very strange. Also that they were, the, they were brought downstairs into a basement area too. It was also like it, it had, somebody was thinking or something like that was very odd too. So um, how did, how after that? Yeah. But so one thing that was really unusual too, is that Nancy lay dying. She took her own blood and she wrote a message. And that was a message that was hard to interpret. I know, I know that I recognized it. Rest feel that she was saying, I love you. But I think really, truly that she was writing the name Burrow. Actually, she drew a heart and a U in her own blood as she lay dying. And that um, it was the way she always signed every little note to us. Um, but there was um, some speculation that she was trying to leave a message about who, who killed them. But in fact, all of those theories were complete hogwash and had nothing to, you know, they weren't anywhere close to reality. They were just made up ideas because they really couldn't think of who, who could do this and why. And ultimately, of course, the killer himself started bragging in high school um, about all of the national press and media attention uh, to this case. And, and he started joking with people about how he had done it. And he did ultimately confess to um, a, a high school friend who was a recent immigrant from Vietnam and didn't really know our culture, didn't know if this guy was serious, really didn't know what to do with this story, didn't know if it was legit or not. Ultimately, when uh, David Biro told him he was going to strike again and rob a bank and kill lots of people and take money and hightail it to Mexico, that's when this young man, uh, the recent immigrant, um, went to the Winnetka police and told them that they, they should look into David Biro. And in fact, they did, and they found the um, a gun under his bed, and the ballistics matched, and they had solved that the crime. Did, was there any proof that Bureau knew Nancy and Richard? 
No, um, our parents knew each other. Um, my father had done some work with Nick Barrow, his father, and uh, they were socially, uh, they, they only lived, you know, a few houses away from each other. They knew each other socially. Um, but uh, no, there's not. And we don't, uh, we think that probably it was the proximity to the Winneka police station. Basically, Mr. Barrow's home was right catty corner behind the Winneka police station. Nancy and Richard's townhouse was directly across the street in front of the Winneka police station. So as he dressed up all in black that night, uh, like a, um, you know, he was the first ever to use this black trench coat. Um, and he uh, dressed up in black boots, black leather gloves, tried to make himself look like an assassin that he was pretending to be. And he um, did, in fact, uh, uh, you know, walk right through the grounds of the police station across the street into the first, you know, home that was right there on the end. Wow. So it is uh, the end unit. So it's it's very likely that he just picked them at random because he could say, you know, look what I did under the nose of the police station and, and you know, and get away with it. All right. So it was kind of like a test thing, like he was bragging, he felt proud about it. And he uh, was strangely kind of had a high IQ. He was an intelligent or is an intelligent person. Um, he, they, I think one of the interesting things in the book is that he was talking about Leopold and Loeb. I've done shows on those two kind of serial killers and there's definitely, it seems like he had that kind of like, he thought it was like a challenge. He was influenced by a movie called bestseller too. So, yeah. and, and very young 16. So that the one with James Woods, the movie yes. he made. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, I he, think we should bring in John Corbett now because he's going to help lay down the foundation of this child's past and what his parents knew about him. Okay, sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I, just for a background at the time, uh, the Jenkin, when the Bishop family came to me, um, I had sort of branched out amazingly in the area of victims' rights cases, bringing civil suits against other people that might be responsible or some held responsible with the criminal themselves for helping aid or cause the crime itself. And I had done a number of victims' crimes. I'd done a number of, uh, I was doing a lot of battered women's things, trying, going after other people that could be responsible for what was happening to this woman, what happened to these women, some of which were killed. Uh, we had suits against landlords. I had suits against the city of Chicago um, regarding uh, battered women and not protecting them as they were required to under statutes. And that was my background, and that's how the uh, Bishop family found me. They had a family friend who was an attorney who knew that I was involved in these type of cases, and that's when they came to see me. Um, when they came to see me, they, the uh, criminal case had already gone through, had been convicted, and so the first thing I do in my investigation, I look into who else might be implicit in um being negligent and causing this to occur that could have done something to prevent it. And the first people I looked at were uh, the parents in this case. Um, when I was given all the facts and my investigation revealed all the things they knew about David and all the different things that had transpired with David and they do nothing about it. Um, I decided that we should bring a suit against the parents under what's called the parental responsibility act. This was the first, against a, uh, the, uh, under the Parental Responsibility Act in Illinois uh, for a juvenile. Um, there was uh, a number of motions to dismiss, most of which we all defeated to have the case proceed. I want to but, point out too, John, that this was the first really big case in the nation of where parents were being held. For parental responsibility, correct. Right. And... Um, I mean, there were so uh, Geraldine already mentioned many of the things that the parents knew about. Uh, the The parents were aware that he, well, he's, it's all began. Um, he's one of the first things he was in trouble for. Uh, balloons filled with urine at other people out his win bedroom window. Then he uh, graduated into uh, shooting the BB gun at the second grader out his window. And when the second grader looked up, terrified him and went for cover, uh, David Biro started yelling things at this poor kid. Police were called. David was taken to the police station with his father in tow. And uh, he was 
released with but before he was released the sergeant who was doing the investigation told david's father that we've got to get this kid help this isn't the first time we've had involvement with him he needs help and then subsequent to that as Geraldine testified to there was numerous reports of windshields being shot out uh, in front of the bureau house and finally one of the women who had backed up her vehicle saw david up in the window with the gun and the police came and surrounded the residence and arrested david again and this time charged him um and john was, if i could also add he also set a girl's sweater on fire at school yeah there was um, numerous incidences i don't i can't even yeah begin well, all of them. and and uh, when he was when he did poison his own family he right. was well, actually that's, diagnosed as a dangerous sociopath and they said he was a danger to be well, that was that, that was the, that was the key. That was the when they yeah. tried to put the wood alcohol in the family's milk, which uh, his sister sort of detected that it looked funny and it smelled funny, and his mother confirmed that she brought the milk to the police station. They confirmed that somebody had laced it with wood alcohol. Um, that's when the parents they finally said, "Okay, well." After finally listening to a few people, they took him to Charter Barkley Psychiatric Hospital. But what happened then? as they always did they took him david out on a uh for a weekend pass and then they refused to take him back to the psychiatric hospital again and so he was not receiving any more psychiatric treatment um and he also he, was forging checks too so he was kind of a skilled forger is my understanding like he'd manipulate well, yeah. well yeah he is uh well that what's interesting about that is the way he was able to get the murder weapon is that he was trying to get an foi card and he, because of his prior convictions and because of his age, he could not get one um, in his name with his picture on it. So he uh, forged the document and he was getting a friend's picture, his picture on it and the friend's name on it. Uh, the mother, uh, when we came in the mail, the mother intercepted it and found it and said, you know, she didn't say anything to him though, but she turned it over to the lawyer who had been representing him in the criminal cases, John Lewis. And uh, John Lewis took it and David Biro actually had the audacity to call John Lewis and say, I know that you have my card because the mother had said, I gave it to your lawyer, you're not getting it. You know, I can break into the, your office and get it if I want to. Now, what struck me the most with all of this is why didn't the mother take the card and just burn it up? Why didn't the lawyer just take the card and burn it up? It's so ridiculous. Um, so the lawyer hid it in this file cabinet where he had tons of files and they would never have found it. Uh, he, the lawyer went as far as his office was in Skokie, Illinois at the time. And he had a friend of his, it was a sergeant in the police department, had the sergeant come out, take a look at his office. Do you think that David could break into it? my office? These all came out in depositions during the case. And Sergeant told him, yes, it's the first floor unit and he's broken into other places before it'd be very easy for him to. So that's when the, he hid the thing, the card, the FOI card in the file cabinet. Now that's a firearms yeah. permit card. So that's what it's right. right. But he had his wife's gun, FBI agent. Well, let me, well, yeah, let me continue with that. So eventually David did break in. And the first place he went was to the lawyer's desk and the desk had his wife who worked for the FBI loaded 357 Magnum in his top drawer unlocked. So he hid the card thinking they would break in, but he left the FOI card or the gun in the drawer loaded, which turned out to be the murder weapon in the case. Um, it, uh, along those lines, in addition to suing the parents, we also the attorney for negligent entrustment of a dangerous weapon in the case. So he was also a defendant in the case. And uh, did you in your trial, did you bring up any of Bureau's writings or anything he said? Because he, he sounded like he was very nihilistic and he had a red notebook, too, right, that he put stuff in. Yeah, he had, he had a book where he had put stuff in. I uh, forget the exact words, but part of it was I am Kane, as the, as the book title says, and I kill people. Let um, me read you that. Let me read you. Yeah, please do. Can you do that, yeah, please do. I, I want to read this out. Is that OK, Bill? Yeah. Please do. Remember that I am the adversary, the interloper. Remember that I am war, strife, famine, pestilence, mirth, 
great signs and silence. Remember that I am the Lord of the tribe, king of the jungle, and hunter of the beast. Remember that I am the viper of the pit, the most cunning animal whose poison is the deadliest known. Remember that I am the second son of Adam and Eve. Remember that I rose up in front of God and slew my brother Abel out of greed. Remember it all, but if you should somehow forget some of it, just remember that my name is Cain and I kill people. This is the mind of a 16-year-old boy. That what's is a, what's so interesting cool. to note here, Geraldine, or everyone, is that this writings were found in his room. He had a lock on his bedroom door. After all of this had transpired, the parents allowed him to put a lock on the bedroom door, never were allowed in there. Um, that's where the murder weapon was found. That's where the glass cutter that he used to break into the house was found. That's where the handcuffs that he handcuffed the victims with was found. And that's where all these notes and letters and things were found. They were all in there, in the bedroom, that the parents allowed him to just lock himself in there and do whatever he like to do. And I thought they were allowing him to act out, allowing his behavior to go uncharted. And John, tell them what a jury found of this. Well, actually, could I could I just add one more piece before he goes into the jury because that's so important. Please do. Um, there, there is one other aspect to this, and I don't even know, Geraldine and John, in our uh, conversation over the years, if I've even told you about this. But um, some years ago, I met a woman who came up to me and said that she had been uh, an employee at the Charter Barkley Psychiatric Facility where David Biro was, uh, was assessed and, um, and diagnosed as a dangerous sociopath. And they had had a big meeting with the parents uh, where they had uh, both of the siblings, both of David Biro's siblings and mother and father were in a meeting there with the professionals at Charter Barclay. And there, uh, what this woman who was present in the room told me is that the everybody, the two siblings were and the staff were pleading with the parents, pleading with them, do not let him come home He's dangerous. This is, they're telling you he's dangerous. He's already tried to kill us. He's, uh, he's tried to kill other people. Um, he's dangerous. Don't let him come home, please. The siblings begged the parents and the parents still succumbed to, oh, David, you know, manipulating them emotionally. And, and they, they were very weak and they knew all of these things. And yet they let him come out. And four months later, Nancy and Richard were dead. Yeah, and he stole like computer equipment. He was on the roof of like the high school stealing computer equipment, which is in his room too, which any parent should have noticed, like huge computers from back in 1990. Yeah, they and, let him padlock his bedroom. Yeah, it's, even it's after all this. It's unbelievable. No, so what no, happened no. next, John? Well, uh, the uh, cases I had sued the attorney, the parents, and of course, David himself. Um, the lawsuits were bifurcated because uh, the parents' attorneys and the lawyers' attorneys say, said that they couldn't get a fair attorney if they had to sit in the same courtroom at the same time on trial with David Biro sitting there, who was obviously guilty. Um, we started to try the parents' case, um, and they had insurance under their – that was another – big move we were able to make. We were able to get coverage pursuant to the homeowner's policy under this. And so they had a large firm representing them. Uh, we started that trial and they eventually offered us their policy limits, which we accepted. But the family had to still give testimony. And it was this, I mean, they already testified in the criminal case. This was very, very difficult for the family to do this. And then we tried the case. I tried the case against David Biro that went all the way to trial. And I received like a $50 million verdict, which was one of the largest verdicts in Illinois at the time. It's, I sort of call it the largest uncollected in Illinois at the time. And now, yes, we've never received a dime. Right. Um, but, well, he's in jail. So we keep, I mean, that's still open that if something would ever happen with what he's trying to do now ever got out. But, I mean, there's not any money there. So then we tried the case against the attorney. At that that went was going really great. Uh, it was we were on our going to the fourth week. I had just rested, and then 
this is interesting. Um, a there was a Tribune article talking about the $41 million verdict against David. And one of the jurors brought that into the jury room and showed the other jurors. And so after three weeks of us presenting our side of the case, which was going in so well, uh, the sheriff reported this to the judge and they called a mistrial. This is after the family again testified to all this horrendous things. And I mean, we had films showing the family together and doing fun things. One of my favorite, Jennifer, was them playing the piano and singing together. Uh, they were quite a couple. And uh, so then the family had like gone through three and a half trials. And I talked to them, I said, you can do whatever you want. Cause now they, the lawyer's firm had offered quite a bit of money. I said, you know, I know that we could win, we're gonna win this. I, I said, but I don't, it's up to you. I don't, if you wanna, cause they were showing strains of going through this. And I said, it's up to you. You sit down, take the night off, discuss what you want to do, how you want to proceed. We can settle it or we can start the trial over again, whatever you'd like to do. And the family got together and they decided, you know, enough's enough. Um, I don't I don't want to have to get up there and do all that again, watch those films. Um, and so we ended up settling the case with the attorney uh, insurance company at that time. And that was the final part of the trial of the civil trial anyway the civil trials right so it's almost like like the oj trial or something like that where you had you know the criminal went through but also the civil case correct exactly. um and so all that happened kind of what's happened next like what's continued he's in jail for the rest of his life right well he's in jail for the rest of his life but there was a supreme court case that came down um, at the time in Illinois, uh, if you were charged, if you were charged with murder for multiple homicide, um, then you received a mandatory life sentence, whether you were a minor or not a minor. And there was a U.S. Supreme Court's case that said those type of uh, statutes and laws were um not valid they were cruel and unusual punishment for a minor to be have to be mandatorily charged for life imprisonment and the judge not having any leeway in say of it in view of that case um the illinois followed suit with a similar case and held that uh that these persons that were not able to have a hearing with the judge having a decision in the sentence that they could uh, file an appeal, not a file an appeal, file up for another hearing to have a rehearing on the life sentence. A resentencing, a resentencing. Resentencing hearing. But the thing with David's case is that it was a mandatory hearing for the life sentence for Astu Nancy and her husband Richard, but it wasn't mandatory sentence for the death of the unborn child. The judge had discretion there and they had a long hearing the judge gave his reasons for issuing a life sentence because of how horrendous the crime was that there was no re there was no reason for him doing this other than wanting to commit this perfect crime and for that reason the judge gave three consecutive mandatory sentences two that he had to and the one based upon his own decision and so um when this case came down david in 2015 tried to um have a hearing set on the mandatory for the child, the unborn child, which the court denied his petition. He thought that was the only way he was ever going to get out was if he could have the court have a rehearing on that, uh, which the court denied. And then it was brought to the appellate court, I believe in around 2018. And the appellate court upheld the underlying court's decision that the court was correct and not allowing a rehearing on the mandatory sentence because of the court. Oh, the, the discretionary, the discretionary sentence for the baby. Yeah. Right. It was a discretionary yeah. sentence. But and so that's the last, I mean, the case that is not over yet. Okay. And right. he still has a right to the hearing as to the mandatory sentences, but that really will not do him much of any good if the court upholds the discretionary sentence in regard to the unborn child. 
and and actually, Mr. Ramsey, I'm very worried that he could get out at some point because there has been a significant and high profile and very, very, very well funded juvenile justice reform advocacy effort that has been going on for, you know, and for the most part, it's it's a, a movement I support. Um, I support criminal justice reform. I worked against the death penalty in Illinois. Um, I actually uh, have been stunned, however, to see how much money has been poured into this effort to end juvenile life sentences. Understanding that the life sentence being given to offenders under the age of 18 is extremely rare. It's only happened 1,300 times in the uh, modern criminal justice history of the United States out of thousands of thousands of cases. And um, so it's only 1,300 cases that we're talking about where the offender was found to be so incredibly culpable, as I think you can see in the case of David Bureau and killing my sister, her husband, and their baby. Um, incredible culpability. Um, you know, we have, um, you know, um, uh, serial killers that start planning and plotting serial killing at 13 years of age, Jeffrey Dahmer first attempted his first murder and, um, uh, you know, it, for, it didn't go through, but he actually attempted his first murder at the age of 13. Um, this is uh, mental illness, extreme sociopathology, extreme psychopathology, doesn't care about your 18th birthday. You can have somebody be an extremely dangerous sociopath or psychopath, and there really is no medical treatment for people like that. And one of the reasons why I formed an organization called the National Organization of Victims of Juvenile Murderers, NOVJM, and our website is teenkillers.org. The reason why a bunch of us started this is because there's been an extraordinary effort of advocacy to do juvenile justice reform, which I think has been 99% good good effort to do good things in the criminal justice system to help troubled youth who get in trouble with the law. But there's an unusual twist to this. Story. Yeah, when, there's, when you have that few 1%, you know, extremely less than 1%, you know, extremely minute um, occurrence of a dangerous psychopath or sociopath who at a very early age shows, you know, clear incorrigibility. Um, you know, the life sentence has to be uh, weighed in terms of public safety. And this is why all of these Supreme Court victories that have been um, uh, leaning towards uh, giving juveniles that have killed and been and received long-term sentences, giving them more and more and more opportunities for release. I am worried because the laws have changed in the 30 years since my sister was killed. And we've been very concerned about um, the, the fact that these laws reforming juvenile sentencing have not recognized that there is this extreme few psychopathologically dangerous uh, killers that should remain incarcerated for life because they yeah, are- he never got any help in jail. We know that he's in jail for life. And that was, he was injured. He has, he he has got to be resentenced and he could still be resentenced. And but he, he has that psychiatric release. At all and what his underlying problems are. And releasing a person like that, he's not only is he a sociopath, but he's borderline personality, which means that he does not have any conscience. Well, I hope and, you're right, Gerald. And there's I, one person, when I interviewed him, the young boy that turned him, turned him in, when I interviewed him, when he was in Menard, he called him a weasel. He's a guy that never should have been born. And I said, so that means if you ever get out, David, you are going to go kill or get him killed. And he just looked at me and smiled because he wanted to get into minimum security. And he said, I felt that if he did, he could leave, he can get out of jail, he could escape and he could change his identity. And who would he probably go after? This young boy who's got a family. John knows about him. Or yeah. Me. Well, if I can, if I can interject at this point, yeah. the scariest thing about David Biro is there's no lack of remorse. Or there's a complete lack of remorse, no remorse. Um, I took his deposition during the course of the civil trial, 
uh, and you have to had to take it at jail and they put you in this little tiny jail cell with bars between you, his lawyer and beside me, we're face to face. During the time of the deposition, he took out and lit up a cigarette and blew the smoke in my face in front of his lawyer. Um, I won't go into the details of what I had to say at that point in time, uh, but the cigarette was quickly put out and he had that same smile on his face when he did it. It's, it's just a, it's an evil, evil look. And you can see it on the cover of Geraldine's book. He just looks like that. He just doesn't look like he, he cares like a menacing figure. And he also said really dangerous stuff, a beast in all of us waiting to come out. There's no room for morals in this world. So he was very amoral, nihilistic at a young age. Um, how have you, how has your family tried? To, I mean, you've started this foundation, teamkillers.org. How else has your family tried to uh, cope or handle this terrible event, Jennifer? Well, both of my parents have passed. Uh, my mother only just within the last few um, few months, actually. Sorry to hear that. And um, they lived long lives, but very sad. Um, and it was a never ending battle. The fact that I am here, I am 31 plus years later, um, uh, still talking, still having to spend time out of my life to advocate, uh, to keep him behind bars. I will have to fight this for the rest of my life because he's younger than I am. And my children may even have to fight um, his release. If he is given opportunities for release, this never goes away for us. And if you know anything about trauma, the neurobiology of trauma, I'm, I married uh, a, an expert in the neurobiology of trauma, a college professor named Bill Jenkins, who is uh, also the father of a murder victim. And he and I met uh, doing this work. Um, and we, we both understand what re-traumatization year after year after year does to people who can never leave something like this behind. As long as there's a chance of him being released, which there is, then I have to continue to, to fight and stay active. I've been involved with a wonderful organization called Marcy's Law, where I actually led a campaign to uh, amend the Illinois Constitution to give crime victims enforceable rights. Uh, we were actually denied the right to make a victim impact statement at his sentencing because the court was busy. It was a mandatory life sentence. They just weren't going to bother with it. And they told wow. us to, that they weren't, wouldn't do it. And we actually had at that point a statutory right to make that statement and we're very much looking forward to it. So I became active fighting for the rights of crime victims to make sure that their rights in the legal uh, process are still protected. But in the end, um, it's re-traumatizing more than I can say that we still have to deal with this man and that um, you know I still have to worry about monitoring every step of his appeals. He still has under the Miller v. Alabama Supreme Court ruling that changed juvenile mandatory life sentences. He still has a right to be resentenced and we're still gonna have to go through that process. I'm fine that it's taking years and years He's been working on this legally for more than eight, eight or nine years. And I'm fine that it's going to take as long as it needs to take. I hope in the end that Geraldine and John, you are correct that, you know, nobody would, would ever dare release him. But, you know, I can't be sure of that. I will have to fight it the rest of my life. Well, you know what? Uh, I want to point out, too, there's an interesting slant here. I'm going to be bringing up Jeannie Bishop. That's her sister who believes of retributive justice that she wrote to him and contacted him and he met with her and she believes that and tell me if i'm wrong that he may be able to be paroled she's kind of forgiven him for the murder my sister has made a career out of my surviving sister jean has made a career out of um uh, talking about forgiveness i i too have um forgiven in the sense that i'm not holding uh, I'm not I'm not like my father was holding this desire to kill and re and seek revenge against this man um, mm. the way the, I think it killed my father. I, he 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 died at 73 years of age. Um, and I think this this just killed him. Um, it it is really um, more for my sister Jean. She is a defense attorney by trade. Well um, it is uh, really about um, 
the one thing that we swore we would never do, which is to give him publicity. Um, she's been willing to, to do that after we all had as a family agreed that we would never give this man publicity. But she has been very interested in promoting um, her own work and her own writing. And um, so we're, we're, we're in a state of disagreement, unfortunately. Because I saw her and Geraldine on a report 2015. She's talking to uh, Bureau and he's stated that he has changed. He regrets things at that time, right? But do you find that's fake? Do you think he's lying? So I actually have proof that he hasn't changed at all. And I'm going to save that story for when I have to go before the Cook County courts uh, and he is resentenced. But suffice it to say that I interacted with him enough myself to test whether or not he really wanted to do the hard work of trying to really apologize and really um, um, demonstrate that he had changed. And um, I offered him that opportunity and he didn't take it because he actually said that my sister Jean was offering him a much easier uh, path forward. I, I was going to require him to do some work. So uh, I will tell that story in more detail before the Cook County courts when he comes up for resentencing, because this happened, you know, 25 years after the murder. He had plenty of time to grow up. And if he really was a deeply changed man and very, very sorry uh, for what he had done, um, that would have been a very different story. But he he is as manipulative now as he ever was. And um, uh, we will do all that we can to make sure that he is no longer a threat to public safety. Well, and manipulation is, is yeah. manipulation is correct. Uh, I mean, when Gene first started talking to him, I know that part of that whole conversation, David had never admitted, had, had never admitted that he had done this crime, though it was obvious. And part of it, Gene, I think at the beginning said, I'm not, there is no discussion. And he was trying to manipulate Gene, thinking that if he had one of the family members that came outright and gave him some forgiveness that would benefit him in his trying to get released. That's classic and, sociopathic behavior. I mean, I'm sorry, right. I'm not a psychologist, but. And she, uh, and he, she told him, you know, if, unless you're going to come out and admit that what everybody knows you do, you did, this is how many years later, Jennifer. Um, yeah. He, he actually. Recently. For so decades. decades he her behind him. He actually came out and admitted it to her. Yeah, he never came out and admitted his guilt until after Miller v. Alabama. Right. Once the United States Supreme Court came down, um, you know, just not even 10 years ago, um, once they came out and said that juveniles that got mandatory life sentences deserve to be resentenced and deserve to have opportunities for release, all of a sudden he's writing uh, Gene a letter saying that he admits that he finally did it. But for 25 years, he did not admit that he had done it and until after the Supreme Court. Have you ever seen that letter, any of you? I've have had it read to me, but Gene holds it and refuses to give a copy to me. But he's relatively young for somebody who's been incarcerated, right? So he's like in his late 40s, I guess. Is that, that I think he's 50. 52, okay. Mm. Still yeah, relatively when I when I saw his picture, he definitely looked a lot different than he did when we were we had the trial going on. He was looking, you know, he had a baby-faced teenager look. Definitely looks much older. And Bill, what makes this unusual too is that I may have to testify too, because there was a fire at Charter Barkley, and a lot of records were destroyed. And as a journalist, I was able to obtain a lot of records on David, which I have in a bank vault. And which I may have to be the one to testify wow. about my findings and what I found out in writing IMK. And I want to say very, very publicly how much I am grateful um, now that my mother and father are no longer here to say this to both of you, Geraldine and John. Both of you have been for decades of enormous help to our family, and we're very grateful. Um, and before before Joyce passed on. I was able to do an interview with her on tape. Uh, so I have her feelings and her, yeah. what she has gone through all these years and her victim impact statement, which was very good. And this whole thing, the I, 
I apologize. It first started when they were in court and I came up to Jennifer and Joyce and apologized for causing them so much grief in writing I Am Cain. And that was a moment about four or five years ago where we we came together. And a wonderful moment because I know that it's doing the story as I did and getting information and everything, it was very painful for this family. It was shocking at the time, but everything was traumatizing. 30, 32 years ago, 31 years ago, it was very, you know, it, everything was traumatizing. And, and actually, Gerald has been very helpful in the civil case as well, uh, helped us a great deal in the civil case and getting the judgment, which is really important because if um, even though um, Mr. Beerer is not going to likely have the $41 million that he owes uh, my family, um, he definitely uh, is, this is something that we can use to prevent him from telling his own story and trying to profit from it. And that is very important to us is that we don't want him to be able to, to get publicity and to profit from it because this is one of the reasons why we think he did it is he, he was seeking, uh, you know, he had collected these articles about, you know, um, um, uh, the Manson killings. And, and he, he wanted to be a famous serial killer and a famous assassin. So we don't want him to have that kind of publicity. And you know what, the important thing that I want to point out, uh, Bill, is the fact that now what's happening in Michigan on the Ethan case is the fact that parents can be held responsible uh, criminally. And this is something that should have been with the David Burrow case. But I think John would agree in the 1990s, it was unheard of for somebody to, in a well-to-do area, especially white parents, to be held criminally responsible for their child. Where now I think people are accepting more responsibility for their actions and the public wants it. Look at what happened today with a police officer and that verdict in that shooting. Right, I mean, America has changed. Don't you agree, John? I agree 100%. I mean, back when we first filed this case, it was like people weren't held accountable or responsible unless you were the person that uh, committed the crime. Uh, I mean, the law in Illinois was then, is now normally that uh, a third a person cannot be responsible for the intentional act of a third party. Okay. We were, we were able to sort of break that up by showing how negligent these parents were and how their negligence contributed to David's ability to commit this murder. But that that's the law that prevented a lot of these lawsuits is that you can't be held responsible for the intentional act of a third party, which is uh, still in existence, but somewhat going to the wayside. And I think this was the one of the first one of the first cases that did so. I mean, clearly, David Barrow's parents were responsible. I remember Nick and Joan Barrow were friends of my mother and father. They had multiple warnings. He tried to kill them. They knew he was trying to get a gun. They knew he had already shot at, at people and things. They knew that he had um, tried to actually obtain, that he had forged his identity and tried to obtain a real firearm. They knew that he had been diagnosed as a dangerous sociopath and pleaded with by family members and staff to not let him out that he was dangerous. And all of these things, and they still let him come home with a padlock on his bedroom door and all of this resulted, there, there's a clear and direct path between their negligence and the fact that Nancy and Richard and their baby were murdered. Yeah, I don't think there's a clear case, not only with them, but when it comes to the attorney also who hid the card and leaves a 350-cent loaded Magnum, yeah. and he knows that David's going to be trying to break in. I mean, the facts that came out in this case, I was like hitting myself on the head saying, I cannot believe these people would do this, would be so ignorant, would be so negligent. And you see, from my perspective, you can see a lot of the changes in the legal community where the Crime Victims' Rights Act and these crime victims' concerns are much more important now than they were seemingly back 30 years ago. And also just how these cases, there's so many cases that I come across where it's not cut and dried after the, the conviction. These families and people are affected their whole lives, and, and especially this case where the perpetrator was young. And I think that traumatization and re-traumatization is something that needs to be emphasized 
in the kind of criminal environment, the criminal law environment that it's not cut and dried that you guys are, you're fighting this guy even out of while he's in jail for decades. And what it does to the families is so severe too. And I, I do credit you, Geraldine, because the way you laid out this book, you took a lot of time talking about the victims and how important their lives were. You know, it was really, I felt touched by that and that you had that concern. It wasn't some salacious kind of true crime book, which I've unfortunately read a lot of those. So I credit you for writing this book. It's chilling. It's actually a chilling book. Frightening how I think, Bill, isn't it? How I just kind of weave the pattern of, uh, of how you see how their lives all came together. But I always love to take a look at how somebody gets into the legal system and then they escalate more. And then the legal aspect of the actual criminal trial. And then like this one, you have a civil trial. And I think that we're gonna find this also with the Ethan Crumley case. With Jennifer and Jim, they've been charged, his parents have been charged with involuntary manslaughter. I mean, I- that's and, and deservedly so. Absolutely. Deservedly so. And they're also going to get hit with the civil case, which will follow probably right after the criminal case, right, John? Uh, without a doubt, without a doubt. And they're holding more people responsible. And really, I think it's about time that people be held responsible, no matter what your sociological, economic life is. You know, If you have knowledge of somebody's being dangerous in society and allowing them to get, get through with this and get out, even, even psychiatrists and so on, who know that they have a dangerous person in their life, but don't do anything about it. I think it's about time people are held responsible. And I think, Bill, you raised this uh, in Illinois now. They do have the Illinois Victims' Rights Law. A big part of it was set forth in June of 2016, uh, giving the victims rights. You, I, I have a case now that I'm handling where under that act, I'm able to file a appearance on behalf of the victims in the criminal case itself to make sure that we're giving notifications of everything that's happening, everything that's going on, which is a big step. And their um, son was killed, brutally murdered. Pardon? And, and your client's son was brutally murdered, right? The current case I have, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's sort of, it was one of my um, victims' rights cases I had where I represented the um, mother of a man that was shot and killed by some youths. And I went after the parents on that one because his father used to, was collecting uh, his collection of murder or of violent weapons. That was his thing. And these kids got an altercation. They went back to that house and got the fathers all these different weapons. You wouldn't believe some of the weapons. And they ended up shooting this guy. But this is like 28 years ago. The mother called me and her um, son or her nephew or grandnephew uh, was murdered. It was a recent case. Uh, the murder took place in a bar in Milwaukee Avenue called Richard's Bar. And my client was kind of Teramos and uh, there was somebody got intoxicated in there, started with homophobic language. Um, the son or the son of the family I represent was gay. And then the drunk guy went outside the bar and my guy went out. He thought he was gone, went out to have a cigarette. And he was stabbed to death like six times with a box cutter. And I was able to, and I have filed an appearance in that case, in the criminal case, because I'm allowed to do that now. And, and, a, and John will be doing that in our case as well. Thank you, John. Yeah, well, I mean, you have one of the nicest families I ever met. Um, it was one of the saddest cases I ever had to do. But in some regards, you know, it turns out fulfilling. I wish it didn't um, but it's, it's a shame. You see a lot of terrible things and things just have to change in our law. Responsibility, I think, is taking responsibility for actions. I think finally the laws are going beyond the civil. And I think that that's very good. You are creating um, a punishment for bad behavior. It's as simple as you're not just releasing them back into society. You're saying for every action, there's a reaction, there's a consequence. Especially crimes against the body are the worst. So you can't bring them back. You can't bring Nancy and Richard back. So Correct. And Mr. Ramsey, thank you so much for articulating so well the ongoing nature of victim trauma and how 
really people, we are walking around in a very traumatized society. Post-traumatic stress is everywhere and it has serious consequences for all of us in our lives. And um, it, it really is uh, something that, that this is the reason why the criminal justice process needs to take into account the toll that constant reawakening of these traumatic memories takes on victims' families. And I Am Cain is a book that really brings you through how parents should be responsible and the actions of a young boy that leads to a horrible murder and the loss of two, three beautiful lives. Very well said. Is there anything you guys would like to add before we wrap this up? Nope, I'm good. John? I think I'm good. Good. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you guys all being here, sharing your stories. Uh, the title of the book, again, is I Am Cain by Geraldine Kolarik, and then one of the crime victims' sisters, Jennifer Bishop Jenkins, and the civil attorney for the family, John Corbett. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Stay there. Stay there. Okay, perfect.